0: The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You're Included, author Dr. Robin Perry explains the importance of having a Trinitarian perspective in our worship. Our host is Dr. J. Michael Fazell. Thanks for taking time to be with us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: What was it that led you into your study of Trinitarian theology?
1: It was an experience in our church one Sunday. I, I must have read something about the Trinity before coming out, because it was in my mind, uh, vaguely at the back of my mind as an issue, when I went into the meeting. and. And the meeting began, where the leader at the front said, "Well, everyone, we've come here to meet with Jesus." And uh, I thought, "Okay, I actually come to meet with some other people as well, but that's that's nice." Um, And then they went on and they prayed this prayer: "Dear Lord Jesus, uh, thanks for being with us. You know, come and be with us as we sing to you." And then we sang a whole load of songs, and something right near the beginning made me think, you know, this is interesting because this is Jesus talk, but what about the Father or the Holy Spirit? There was no mention of them. And as the, So I listened up as the meeting went through, and song after song, they were either what I called Jesus songs, or they were what I call You Lord songs, which are the kind of songs about the Lord or God, and it doesn't say Father or Son or Spirit. So. and In the context of the meeting, it was very clear that the You Lord songs meant Jesus. And all the prayers were about Jesus and then we had a sermon and it was about Jesus, but it wasn't no mention at all of the Father or the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then we had a sinner's prayer at the end, but it was a sinner's prayer recast in a, in a sort of Jesus version. Dear Lord Jesus, I've sinned against you, I know you love me, you died for me, you rose yourself from the dead. <laughs> um, Come and live in my heart. And then, and then we went away. And by this point I was thinking, you know, there's something really weird about and the other thing that was weird is that nobody else seemed to think there was anything odd. And it, was, it, it just didn't click, didn't register at all. And so I thought, now that's worrying that you can have a whole meeting completely devoid of any sense of engaging with the Father or the Holy Spirit um, in a Christian meeting and no one notices. So I thought, well, maybe I should go. So I went home and I got out um, a worship album. Uh, probably the best-selling worship album in the world at the time, so I will have a look through the lyrics and see what what they say. So I read through the lyrics and all of the songs were good um, on their own, and there was not a problem with any of them. But as I read each song, what struck me it was a recording of a worship event. And so, looking at the whole thing, not a single reference to the Father or the Holy Spirit anywhere. Um, intriguingly, the story of Jesus was uh, completely collapsed too, so that you There was references about God's transcendence, there were references about the imminence and presence of God, Um, but there was no reference to the Incarnation, the story of Israel, creation. There was no reference to the ministry of Jesus. One song refers to his death and resurrection. There was no references to the ascension or the giving of the Spirit or the return of Christ. The whole thing was collapsed into my experience of God now, Um, and I thought, now that's really worrying. As a worship event, which this was a recording of, is completely untrinitarian. So then in the subsequent weeks, I would. I mean, it's terrible once you're alert to this, you start listening out for it. And so in the subsequent weeks, I would um, listen to the songs and the prayers and so on. And I found regularly uh, the Father and the Spirit either hardly mentioned or not mentioned at all. It was terrible. And. Uh, and so I then started looking at, okay, let's look at, say, Vineyard worship albums. And uh, so I went through every Vineyard album published over an eight-year period, I think. I can't remember. Something like eight years, maybe five to eight. And I just went through the lyrics to see how many of them mention the Father, the Son, the Spirit, how many mentioned two, and if so, which two, how many mentioned all three. And um, it was shocking when you looked at the whole corpus of songs. Um, all of the songs were fine, I had no problem with any of them in particular, but when you look at them as a whole, there was no sense of Trinitarian balance uh, in the thing. And this is what sort of alerted me to the issue of, you know, when we worship, are we wor- is our worship fully Christian, or is it slipping into something that's a bit more almost Unitarian in practice, or, or what Karl Rahner calls mere monotheism? Mm-hmm. And, and if somehow we discovered that the Trinity wasn't true, would it actually make any difference Mm. to the way we did anything? Would anyone even notice? Uh, And that that was the thing that set off my flags and got me thinking, I really need to look into this and see if I can try and do something constructive about it, which is then what I I tried to do by writing the book and talking to uh, worship leaders and songwriters and, and so on after.
0: And now, uh, after your your teaching and uh, you've done a lot of work in, in it, what, what is it about Trinitarian theology that you still find the most uh, compelling and exciting?
1: It's, it's hard to um, put your finger on one thing and say, that, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. In the same way, you know, I, when I was a kid, I used to have a favorite color. My favourite colour was green, whereas now you know I I can't abstract a single colour. You know, I I just think, well, green's beautiful when it's alongside all these other colours, but it's the interplay that. If there was one thing that I keep coming back to about um, Trinitarian theology, at least as I conceive it, is is this sense that in the person of Christ. Well, I guess it was one of the concerns I. It came to me through one of the concerns raised when I started saying we need to be more Trinitarian and intentionally Trinitarian in the way that we worship. And somebody said, yeah, but shouldn't our worship be um, Jesus-focused? Because we're Christians and the Gospels are Jesus-focused, shouldn't we be Jesus-focused? And, you know, I thought, well, that's true, actually. We are Christians and we should be Jesus-focused. And then it dawned on me, you know, to be Jesus-focused is to be trinitarian because it's precisely in the incarnation of Christ that the trinity is revealed. And uh, and and so by definition if you are focused on the Jesus who is the Jesus revealed in the gospels, uh, the Jesus that the church believes in, if you're that kind of Jesus focused, you will be trinitarian. So you can be Christocentric trinitarian it, it, it sort of follows. And the thing that I keep coming back to is this sense that in the person of Christ, God has completed this work of salvation in the Saviour, in, inscribed in His flesh, our humanity is redeemed. Um, and in the risen body of Christ, God has done all that needs to be done to save us. And now, through the work of the spirit god is working to join people to christ to sort of participate in that salvation this is a thought that i keep coming back to and it's the thing that keeps inspiring me because it takes the pressure i think i can have hope because it's god doing this you know it's not about me doing this or anyone doing this or i you know i look at the statistics how churches are doing and i think gosh this isn't good but then i think god's doing this God has completed this work in Christ. There's no way He's not going to finish it. You know, there's no way that the spirit's been caught by surprise. And so I think I like the um, all analogies of the Trinity have their pros and cons. I I rather like Irenaeus's, I do the two hands of the Father. it has its downsides, but one of the upsides is I think it gives a lovely way of thinking about salvation because you know you have the Father whose intention is to draw humanity and people to Himself, and so He does this by stretching out the hand of His Son, and then He reaches out the hand of His Spirit, and through the Spirit He draws us to Christ, and then through Christ He draws us to Himself, and so we're we're held in this kind of Trinitarian embrace uh, where the Father Through the Spirit draws us through the Son to Himself. I just I love that image, and this sense that actually it's God that does this, and it doesn't depend on us in the end. God, of course, you know the Spirit enables us to participate, and and we engage, and it's a subjective, you know, engaging with God in our own relationship with God. But it's not something we do. It's not earning anything with God or achieving anything with God. It's being enabled by God to participate. So even our response to God is, as Matt Redmond says, a gifted response, a response that God himself enables us to make.
0: If, if Christians don't have uh, this uh, uh, some, some kind of understanding of, of the trinity and how uh, the relationships within the trinity and how we're drawn into that and, and so on, what and many don't. It, it, it's very common to uh, go into a church that really doesn't uh, have a, a trinitarian form of worship or even preaching, even though they believe in the Trinity as a as a fundamental doctrine. That most members would not even begin to. They don't think about it, and they wouldn't be able to explain it if they were asked. And what did they lose uh, uh, now we know they're christian we know that they they have faith for uh, that we know they're saved by grace and that they experience uh, they walk in, in christ and so on to the degree that they can but what what are what are they missing what what could they have if they better understood
1: that's who good god question is? yeah it's a good question and i think what we'd have to say first of all is that their experience of god is Trinitarian, even if they don't realize yeah, it, yeah. Um, because there's no other way of encountering God, because there is no other God to encounter. Yes. Um, and so, you know, when when anyone, even even someone, when anyone has an encounter with God, it is the Triune God they encounter. But it might, but it can enrich their encounter with God, their subjective understanding and experience of that relationship with God, and. It can free them up to walk with God in more um, liberated ways, as it were, to understand better the God who it is they encounter, the God who it is that's at work in their life, working out their salvation. Um, Of course, it's still the Holy Spirit working in them, even if they have never heard of the Spirit or can't conceptualize these things rightly. Um, But it would enrich their relationship with God. Uh, in, 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 in many ways, for instance, um, it would enrich their engagement with God as a father to realize that it's, you know, it's not through their effort to try and please the father uh, and earn status for the father, or somehow, if they misconstrue their Trinitarian theology, somehow placate the father uh, who's really not very kindly disposed towards them. Uh, to realise that, in fact, you know, you don't have to placate God. God doesn't need placating. God loves us. This is why He sends His Son, uh, and this is why He sends His Spirit and draws us. And it just um, enables us to appreciate more the love and grace of God, and uh, to sort of take some of the, the pressure off. We have to earn stuff with God, yeah. but it doesn't change the objective fact that it is still the Father through the Son and the Spirit. That's the only way that they're able to engage with God in any sense at all, even if they can't think of it straight.
0: Isn't it true that there is no such thing as good in the world or um, love, mercy, all, all things good? Uh, that don't come from Christ. They're, they don't come from from the Triune God into the world. There's there's no other world except the one. Uh, it's not like people who are not Christian, if and when they do good things, it's not like that comes out of some other universe, uh, not made by no,
1: no. And uh, you know they're living in the same created order, which is the good. Creation that the true God made. They are living as God's creatures, um, in the image of God, even if they don't realise that they are. And um, you know, I don't think, I don't think people should understand a doctrine of total depravity. Say to mean that everybody is as depraved as they possibly could mm-hmm. be. And and um, and and you know, personally, I've always found myself reacting against the idea that the misuse of the scripture that says, you know, even the good things you do are as filthy rags, you know, which, which is often used to mean, I mean, what the prophet means, what God means when he says that, is you guys are so bad, so you guys in particular are so bad that even the good stuff you do is bad. Um, he's not saying everybody's such that even their, every, even their love and kindness, even that's filthy and disgusting in my sight. Um, I don't think God, God's, saying anything like that. And so we can see um, genuine aspects of the image of God um, and the work of God and even the work of the Spirit uh, working in and through people who don't yet know Christ, of course. It's because they're God's creatures in God's world. And although the image of God might be broken in us, it's not gone. It's not completely destroyed. We We would cease to be human if that was the case.
0: So the only way to be human is to be human in Christ. That's all there is.
1: Well, right. Um, I mean, in one way, thinking about salvation. I mean, salvation is about the restoration of our humanity. It's about being human the way God made us to be human. And so, you know, Christ, Christ is a human being. And in his, I mean, I think of it like this, um, or sometimes I think of it like this. I imagine our humanity is like a rubber glove. Um, do you know what I mean? You might do the wash the dishes with rubber gloves. Okay, they have those in America too. I'm <laughs> just checking. So I think, you know, Christ or the, the Logos is like the, that on which we are modeled as humans. And so it's like a rubber glove molded on this, this, this hand. But the rubber glove has become torn and ripped and damaged. And so, what God does in Christ is the very template, the very one in whose image we are made, um, takes on, I don't mean disguises himself as a human, but becomes flesh. Mm-hmm. And on the cross, melts down this humanity, our humanity, and remolds it around himself, remakes it, reforges the, the humanity in the resurrection. And so in the resurrection of Christ, we see it's all about the glory of God in human flesh, in human beings. And salvation is all about, all about being human as God made us to be. It's about the glory of God. Because I think, um, you know, we need a bigger view of what it is to be human. And in Genesis, when God makes us, God makes us in his image. And, And the word in Hebrew here is tselem, which is the word used to describe an image of a deity. So in the ancient Near East, you would have a temple and then you would have the statue of the deity in the temple. And the statue of the deity was understood to be they would go through a ritual uh, and when they went through the ritual they believed that the spirit of the God would would inhabit the statue. Now the amazing thing is Yahweh forbids the use any statues or any images like this. Because of the kind of God that God is, nothing like that. No statue that can't speak and can't act and do these things can image this God. But God authorizes in the earth his own selem, his own icon, as it were, which is a human being. To be dwell, indwelt by the presence of God himself in the earth, mediating God's rule and dominion over creation is a? Astonishingly high view of what it is to be human. Amazing. And people say, oh, Christians have such a dour view that people are just humans, they're just scum and worms and all that. But in fact, the Bible has an unbelievably high view of humans as God's icons through which God commissions humans that His glory, the very presence of God Himself, would be in humans. And so this is what's being restored. This is a glory lost. In sin, and humans fall short of this glory, uh, but in Christ it's a glory that's restored. So, being a Christian is all about being changed by the Spirit to sharing Christ's real humanity. It's so, it's about in Christ, through the Spirit, becoming more human.
0: Going back to the topic of worship, uh, you've done a lot of work on, on Christian worship, and uh, I don't know if. I could put it in these terms, but could you talk for a few minutes about the, uh, what we might call the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of Christian worship?
1: Sure. Um, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of bad, and there's a lot of ugly. I guess it's easier to talk about the bad and the ugly. Um, and, and one of the things, I guess, one of the things that concerns me as a person who sort of thinks theologically and thinks Trinitarianly. Is is all the stuff that isn't in worship, and particularly in my own tradition. So I'm a charismatic evangelical, free church, ecclesiology, uh, and the way we do things has plus points and downsides. But one of the changes that's taken place over the recent years is there's been a move where you used to have the minister who would lead the whole service, uh, and, and oftentimes it would have a very clear theological shape a certain kind of terrain that you would cover. Uh, so you'd always have confession of sin, thanksgiving, you'd have intercessions and so on. And For various reasons, this has changed to a form of worship where you have a worship leader who is basically a, a singer, guitar player normally, and worship becomes more about singing one song after another, with just linking songs, and that would be a worship time. And there are all sorts of problems with that but one of the problems is that it is in great danger of cutting out crucial parts of Christian worship like confession like intercession. And it also because the songs tend to come out of the same songwriting stables there are, you don't tend to get songs that deal with issues like lament or confession or the eucharist or baptism or Listening to the Word of God, or so on—things that are central in Christian spirituality—gone, and you very, very quickly lose a sense of balance or shape. And, and often it's like in some of the more liturgical worshiping traditions. You, to me, it's like Lord of the Rings. You know, you have this vast landscape of, mm-hmm. of terrain that you're covering uh, as you move through, and there's a sense of movement as you go through a meeting or a series of meetings. Over the whole Christian year, you have the shape of movement and engaging with different aspects of God and of the story of of God in Christ. Um, And sometimes it feels to me like uh, we charismatics are in danger of being like locked in a broom cupboard under the stairs, walking in circles, and we're covering such a small uh, terrain. There's not really much sense of you know what holds the link the songs together is often. Are they in the key that, that means I can go from one to the other? <laughs> yeah. um, are they songs that have blessed me recently? But there isn't much thought often given to you know, the theological shape and the sense of you know, are, what are the, the kinds of things that we ought to be engaging with here? And this is through no bad intent on the part of worship leaders. and in my experience, worship leaders and songwriters desperately want to help the people of God to engage with God. This is where their hearts at it really is, but but they have had no role models in how that could be done. The, um, has there's very little help given to them um, through leaders or through training courses. You know, oftentimes when I see the programs of these training courses for worship leaders, it's like all well, technical stuff about PAs, and or it's about yeah. technical stuff about the music, or it's um, or it might be encountering the presence. Because one of the dangers of contemporary worship is, particularly charismatic, it all becomes about my engagement with God now. So everything becomes collapsed into now. There's no sense of where we've come from or where we're going, and uh, this is really bad for our spirituality. Because if you think of it, most you know most of our Christian spirituality and the way we relate to God is something we pick up through engaging in the practices of worship. And the ways we think about God, the language we use to describe God, the way, the kinds of things we would think to talk to God about, and the kinds of things that would never cross our mind to talk to God about, are things we learn just through engaging in prayer. And we do that, we learn those habits and those things through doing it communally. And if our spirituality is being shaped in a deformed, sub, not unchristian perhaps, but sub Christian, um, way, when we meet together to worship, then we are selling short our congregations. Um, our people, they are being shaped in ways so that, just to take lament as an instance, if there is never any place for lament in our worship, unlike in Scripture where there clearly is, um, then you know when people are confronted with situations where the appropriate response and the honest response, the faithful covenant response to God, Is like Christ Himself on the cross, you know, to lament. If we're not giving people a vocabulary to know how to respond to God in those kind of situations, what they end up doing is feeling bad or feeling like they're somehow impious or unbelieving to have those. How could I have those thoughts? And it's pastorally terrible. I, one of my goals is to help charismatics to rediscover a charismatic way of lamenting in the spirit that that actually you know Christ himself on the cross stands in our place and laments in our place he he prays my god my god why have you forsaken me psalm 22 it's not in a sense of abandoning god it's my god my god why have you forsaken me so he's lamenting as a way of holding on to god in this situation and so i want to argue look christ does this the old testament saints do this and, and in Romans eight, I think you know the way. The way I argue in, in a paper I've written and in a book I've done on Lamentations. I think we can draw from this that the Holy Spirit. One of the ways the Holy Spirit helps us is that the Holy Spirit, as creation groans, and as the church groans, groaning, lamenting the current state, lamenting, groaning in frustration, groaning, looking to the future, and groaning in intercession. Um, the Holy Spirit himself groans with us, groans with creation. And as the Holy Spirit groans, I, w- I want to argue that the Holy Spirit is doing the same thing. The Holy Spirit is, um, is groaning in frustration at the brokenness of creation, and so lamenting. The Holy Spirit is um, looking to the future to bring to birth, like through the travail and the pain of childbirth, to bring forward a new future. And the Holy Spirit, through the groaning, is praying. By the will of the Father, for creation to be liberated. And, so, and the Holy Spirit, I want to say, can groan through our groanings. And the Holy Spirit, we can lament in the spirit, as it were, so that our own laments and prayers are taken up by the Holy Spirit and, and fused with His, and become, rather than cries of despair, become transformed into tram- groans that take hold of God and look to the future with hope. Uh, So, I think there is a Trinitarian way of understanding what is going on and how lament is really something that God himself, through Christ, through the Spirit, uh, is engaged with and and through which we ought to, uh, as faithful Christian disciples, um, be lamenting, groaning with creation and praying it forward into its glorious destiny. You've been watching You're Included,
0: a production of Grace Communion International.